I want to introduce a video, and before I do so, I want to read a quote uh, from, from some Barna research. You guys are familiar with Barna. The research yields this. Of the 3.7 million United States evangelicals who are 18 to 29 years old, 2.6 million will leave the faith. They'll leave the faith at some point between their 18th and 29th birthdays. That's 260,000 who leave each year. That's 712 who will quit the faith today. The stats are against us, right? The research yields that many people leave the faith because they don't know why they believe what they believe. And apologetics, many of you guys will be familiar with apologetics, but it's the idea of how can I defend intellectually why I believe what I believe? And we can do that. The scriptures tell us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, and what? Our mind, right? So we can intellectually defend what we believe. When I was 18 years old, I began attending UAB. And for the first time in my life, I was exposed to atheism and many, many isms. And that's when the rubber met the road for me, right? Why do I believe what I believe? Well, it's in that vein that um, we're going to be having a conference. It's held at uh, Briarwood Presbyterian Church. And that will be, let's see, guys. April 20th and 21st, all right? It's called Rethink, and the name of the, the actual conference this year is Focus. And it's the whole idea of how can we intellectually defend what we believe about Jesus Christ. What we believe about the world depends or, or drives how we live in the world, right? What we believe about the world drives how we live in the world. So with that in mind, take a look at this video. Whether we realize it or not, everyone has a worldview. My worldview is a mixture of the things I've done, things I've been taught. It determines the way you live your life. It's kind of like standards we set for ourselves. What you believe about the world determines how you live in the world. Opinion, Islam and Buddhism, naturalism, sexuality, politics, theism, science. Your worldview has consequences. It will shape how you understand law, politics, race and gender, morality, and even science. That's why I'm so excited to invite you to join me and a whole host of other speakers to this year's Rethink Apologetics Conference. Let's get equipped and rethink how we see the world. see everyone this morning. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of First Thessalonians. just want to read a couple of verses uh, this morning. I'm going to ask that you stand as we do that. I was thinking uh, we were traveling back yesterday from Nashville, seeing our sons this weekend, and um, the Lord just impressed on my heart that we don't need to take each other for granted. Um, you know, it, it's the Lord's church right? And, and the Lord's church is made up of those who are in Christ, who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And um, so we look around the room and, and, and we go, well, 
you know, we're not sure how many do know and how many don't know. There may be some in here who don't know Jesus Christ, but, but we do know some that do, and, and we hang out together. And if you're visiting with us this morning and you're a part of the church, um, that means that um, you're saved, right? That's what it means. It doesn't mean you're a part of this, this uh, membership. Um, we'd love for you to be, but the church is about those who are in Christ, and it's very important that we don't take each other for granted. That all those one another passages that are in the Bible, that we really take those to heart. And that we encourage one another. And that we love one another. That we edify one another. All those one another passages. Um, if you're not familiar with those this afternoon, after you take your nap, study. right? Um, but there's some really great one another passages that encourage us to think about each other. And how we might minister to one another in the body. And so... Um, Paul, as he's writing to the Thessalonians, is just thankful for them. And I just want to tell you, I'm thankful for you. You are a blessing to me. And I really appreciate uh, the edification. And I appreciate all of you who, who are loving one another. I'm seeing that. And it just encourages my heart. And I hope it's encouraging to you. Because you know, there are a lot of people out there in our culture who are looking just for love. Right? They, they want to be loved. And to know what what the Bible says about love and that agape love, which is unconditional and sacrificial, and that being displayed and exhibited in the body is an encouragement. And so I just wanted to make mention of that this morning. Just read a few verses here uh, together. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 1. Paul and Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for all of you. I like that. I like the fact that Paul just really focuses in on thankfulness for all of them. And then he says, making mention of you in our prayers. You know, how many times this week did God bring people in this body to your mind to pray for? That's what we're talking about here, right? I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how you'll take this, but, but we shouldn't be lazy Christians, Right? God has given us, right, each other. We need to remember each other and pray for one another. Notice what he says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for, look at that last phrase, for your sake. I love that. That's, that's a selfless lifestyle that Paul and Silas and Timothy displayed to the church. Lord, help us to be that, right? Help us to see each other. And um, the encouragement that people need as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. There are so many people in this congregation, I know for a fact, going through hardships. And so we need to pray for them as God brings those people uh, to our minds because listen he's the one that hears us and he knows all things right and he knows what's going on in your life and so let's pray together as we begin our our service lord we just want to thank you so much thank you for who you are thank you for the opportunity to um be together today to be um most of all uh, in in your presence lord um your word tells us where two or more are gathered, that you're there. And so we know you're here. You're among us. We thank you for that. 
We thank you, Lord, that um, we have the privilege to be able to come into this place and to be able to worship. And I pray, Lord, that whatever may uh, be distracting us this morning, maybe things that happened this last week or some unknown things about the week to come, I pray that you would help us to concentrate this morning on who you are and how wonderful you are and how wonderful it is to truly be able to worship you. And so we do that through your word, uh, Lord, as we read. We do that through song. And I just pray that everything done this morning would glorify you in the name of Christ. Amen. We had an opportunity to have our five-year-old grandson to uh, come and stay with us. And uh, he's, uh, I was trying to explain to him exactly who Jesus, was, Jesus is. And, uh, but, you know, I got to the point, you know, we were reading through this little book, and it talked about how, you know, about, about Easter. You know, it talked about how he died and he rose again. I tried to explain just a little bit in a way maybe a five-year-old would, would understand what it was all about and everything. And I said something about, you know, but when he rose again, I said, you know, he's still living today. Amen. He's still living today. I said, he's living up there. He's living with God, and he is sitting on a throne today. He is alive today as much as you and I. And that's difficult to explain to a five-year-old. It really is. Sometimes it's, uh, it's, it's hard to explain somebody in their 60s, you know. Um, but, you know, but we have a God who is unique. That's what makes him holy. He's set apart. He's not like other gods. You know, he's alive today. And he's sitting on the throne of glory. And uh, so that's the reason why we come and we worship him. So I want you to listen to a great song that the choir has been working on. It's called Behold Our God. Who has held the oceans in his 
So I'll pray together, maybe. Father, nothing can compare to you, Lord. You're seated on your throne. You are holy. You are the glorious God that created this universe, that made everything, that gave us your law, you made us, and you told us to obey those laws. And God, you came for us because we are the ones who deserve to die. And you died on that cross in our place. But Lord, unlike any other Savior this world comes up with or God this world can come up with, Lord, you defeated that and you are alive today and you are seated on your throne. Lord, you reign forever and ever and ever. And Lord, that's the reason why we come to worship you today. So God, we thank you. We praise you for being the great and glorious God that you are. So, Father, as we are here gathered today, we tell you we love you, we praise you, we honor you, and we give you all the glory and the praises due you this morning. Thank you again for allowing us to be here in your presence. These things we pray in your Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Ron, and choir. We appreciate all those who labor, because it is labor, who labor uh, so faithfully, um, Ron and the choir and the praise teams, plural. Um, we have two, by the way. <laughs> so um, we really appreciate, right, the, the, the work, the labor that goes into that. We are the uh, benefactors of that, and so we just we just thank you, Ron, and thank you, Joe and B, for leading those groups, and we just appreciate you guys uh, so much. It, it's enriching as we come. Um, I brought two Bibles up here today because mine was um, I have three granddaughters. I haven't said anything yet. I have three granddaughters. Now, Teresa knows. I was sitting in the living room uh, a little over a week ago, I guess, and um, about a week ago, and I hear this, um, oh, no, 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 no. That was Teresa, by the way. And she was talking to our granddaughters. You know, children don't always obey. I mean, you know, and it doesn't take much for them to get into things. And so um, she got a Bible. And there's there's First Peter. <laughs> there was First Peter. <laughs> I'm glad she didn't get Second Peter, right? That would have been a sure sign to just stop, right? <laughs> I was like, "Are you kidding me?" Um, wow! And then you just hug them and kiss them, and that's what you do with grandkids. So, um, and you send them back home. <laughs> I was ready to send her home right away. All right, well, it's good to see y'all today. I have to, I'm sorry, I've, I needed another stand, and so you turn to Second Peter while I'm working all that out, right? Turn to Second Peter, and we're in the second chapter, amen? And we've, been, uh, we've almost been through three verses, right? Almost, and, um, and I say that because we'll deal with two phrases, one this week and one next week, and you're like, you're kidding me. But they're very important phrases, 
There are phrases where uh, theologians have landed the plane and have discussed in great detail um, these particular phrases because they are so vitally important. The last phrase that will lead us into the next uh, section um, is actually about judgment, and we won't get to that till after Easter. But um, that leads us into one long sentence. In fact, it's one of the longest sentences in, in the New Testament. I think it's uh, verse 4 through verse 10a, just one long sentence. And it's like Paul just says, he's a rambler. He's rambling, but he's making sense, and you just have to connect the dots. And um, I'll, I'll hopefully help you to do that as we get to, um, to verse 4. But I want to deal with um, verse 1, go back to verse 1, and deal with two phrases that are very critical in understanding what was going on with Peter as he's writing this letter, all right? So, so remember that he's writing to a group of believers, and he's told these believers, listen, you've been given everything that you need for life and godliness. You remember that? And he said that back up in the first part of, of chapter 1. And then he tells them, he says, look, you need to be growing in your relationship with the Lord. Let's pause there for a minute. You agree with that? They needed to be growing in their relationship with the Lord. We need to be growing in our relationship with the Lord. That, that's worth stopping for and considering, is it not? I mean, our life, we say, is in Christ. And if we say that, then, then the, the most uh, joyous thing that we could do on a daily basis is to get to know our Savior better. And there's only one way that that's going to happen, guys, and that's only going to happen as you and I are in the Word of God and studying the Word of God. And don't throw up your hands and say, I just don't understand it. If you have the Spirit of God residing in you, He is the teacher. He's going to teach us, and if you have questions, that doesn't mean you don't have questions. I have plenty of questions that probably this side of glory I'm not going to have answered. But I was talking with somebody this morning, and it's like, man... When you get in the Word, right, and you know this happens to you, and the pattern's there, and you're just in the Word, you're in the Word, you're in the Word. Don't you just want it more and more and more? My granddaughter wanted it for a different reason. She wanted to rip it up. But we ought to want to eat it up, right? Eat up the Word. And so um, he tells them, keep growing. And then, he, and then we're given kind of this, this, this wonderful picture of, of Peter's commitment to these believers. It was a radical one. You know, he, he, had, he had been told by the Lord that, that his death was imminent, and, and we see this radical commitment on the part of Peter. And, and in that commitment, we see from Peter as he's writing this radical commitment to Scripture, to, as he labels it, the more sure prophetic word. We have the Word of God. You have it, right? Right here in front of you today. You have the Word of God. I have the Word of God. And so this is a beautiful chapter, and, and he closes it by saying, we have the revelation from God. And then you come to chapter 2, and it's this, ugh, right? He's like, spends one entire chapter on false teachers. He contrasts that which was true with that which is false. And these false teachers are telling a false message, and he's warning them of that. And so what this calls for, as we've talked about uh, before, is this, this call to discernment. And I love this quote 
that I have, and I don't have it up on the screen, I'll just read it to you. Discernment in Scripture is the skill that helps us differentiate. It is the ability to see issues clearly. This theologian writes, we desperately need to cultivate this spiritual skill that will enable us to know right from wrong. Because one thing's for sure, our culture has a difficult time with that. But the church needs to get on board with this thought that, hey, we need to differentiate between that which is right, that which God has said, and that message that the world is provocating. And the message that the world is provocating is not the word of God. It's not the truth. And so as you come to chapter 2, we're introduced to these false teachers, and there's this general description of them given in the first three verses. We're told that they come into the midst of us, and the Bible tells, uh, Peter says to these, these guys, listen, they subtly enter. They come alongside of you, and as I've said a couple of times, right, they have our vocabulary down, but they don't have the dictionary. It's not the same. And, it, and really, it goes back to a couple of basic things when you think about this in theology, because I really believe that we are in a war for theological truth today. We're in a war. Now, you may not think that, but I believe that as you look out there because, right, whatever a person says, it's true. That's the message of the culture. But the reality is truth comes from who? It comes from God and it comes from his word. And so there's this war on theology today. On the truth, and I believe it starts with two primary issues, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. I want you to remember that, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Because there are a lot that are teaching, well, we need something else, more than just the Bible. But is that true? Is that true? No. You can say that emphatically. No! But the message out there is, is this really enough? And then there's the attack on the gospel, and Paul deals with that in such an eloquent way in Galatians 1. It's a wonderful way that he deals with that. He says, if an angel, right, if an angel or any other person declare to you another gospel, let him be anathema, let him be destroyed. Man, listen, people would be so offended by Paul's preaching today, they'd walk out in droves. Because he just told the truth. Guys, that's what we're charged to do. So if you're a teacher, right, that's what you're charged to do is teach the truth of God's word. And so as we come to chapter 2, he gives this general description of these teachers and he says they enter subtly. And then he says that their teaching is destructive. It's destructive to those who hear. But you know what? As we're going to see, it's destructive to them. Destruction, right, when you think about false teachers, not only is it destructive to those who are hearing, but it's destructive to themselves. They don't know, but their path, their end is destruction. And it's a pretty gruesome picture as we get into chapter 2 that we're going to see together of this destruction. But I want us to focus in on two phrases. What did I do with my glasses? There I uh, two phrases uh, the next two weeks. And the first one is found in verse 1. Well, actually, they're both found in verse 1. You see, Peter writes this, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you 
who will secretly introduce, subtly introduce destructive heresies. And then he says, even denying the master who bought them. Now, if you were to get out commentary, you would have, well, let's say you had ten commentaries, ten different theologians, and you're going to find that there are some theologians that really focus in on that first phrase. And then there are some theologians who focus on the second phrase. And you'll find very few who focus on both. But I'm going to focus on both because they're there. And they're very important to understand. So Peter says about these guys that they introduce destructive heresies. Notice that word is plural. But then I want you to notice also that he really doesn't give a lot of detail about the heresies. I mean, do you see a list of heresies here in chapter 2? He really doesn't deal with that a whole lot. And you go, what in the world is he talking about? But then he says, they even deny the master who bought them. They deny the master who bought them. And so I want to break down that first phrase today and answer this question, what did their life say? And I want you to think about your life today. What does your life say? Because there's one thing that I wrestled with as I was working my way through the description of these guys. I'm going, man, Lord. Yeah, they're false teachers. They're not provocating the gospel. On the other hand, I am a teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, wow, the way these guys and their life is described, I'm like, you know what, Lord, I'm a sinner. You see, the emphasis in chapter 2 is not so much about their theology as much as it is about their life. What their life said about their theology. You get that? I mean, they are connected. You cannot disconnect the two. If you believe that God is a holy God who demands obedience, then you're probably going to live your life like that. But if you're a person who says, well, God's the Savior, and he really, it really doesn't matter how much I live for him in this life, well, your life might reflect that too. And in this case... We have, in chapter 2, a description of these guys who are described as false or pseudo, right? They're not the real thing. And so Peter describes them as even deny the master. And so we want to understand this phrase. And so to understand the phrase, you've got to break it down. All right, so the word denying, what does that mean? It means to say one doesn't know someone or something. That's what it means in the original language. To say one doesn't know someone or something. You remember those days when you were in, in school? And some of you are still in school. And somebody's making a commotion over here in the corner. And the teacher turns around and says, All right, which one of you? And what do you do? Hey, it's not me. It's them. Right? At that point in time, you don't want to identify yourself with the troublemakers. And yet you're one of them. So denying means to say... One doesn't know someone or something. Secondly, denying stresses a conscious, intentional action. So not only are they aware of it, right? Not only are they aware of the fact they're denying the master, but they're doing it intentionally. <laughs> That's pretty bold. I look at that man, I, you know, 
And, and I'm going to show you what that meant, means in a few minutes as we define the word master. So denying stresses a conscience, intentional action. And that's what was going on with these false teachers. And then thirdly, denying is present tense, which emphasizes a continual action. It wasn't just a momentary point in time where they were denying the master. But it was over and over and over and over again. I mean, I've had momentary times of denial. Have you? You say, well, I don't know. Have I? What do you mean? There have been times, I'll give you one, an example. There have been times in my life where I've denied the Lord by not bowing my head and not praying in public. Have you ever done that at a restaurant? I mean, I'm just being honest. I'm not saying I'm doing it now. I'm saying, though, it's happened in my life. What this made me do as I was working through this section is it made me kind of, okay, here are these false teachers, but here are those of us that claim to be born again, and wow, how am I living? So denying here in terms of these false teachers is present tense, which emphasizes a continual action, not a momentary denial. Can you imagine how it must have been for Peter to pen those words? Because Peter was guilty of what? A momentary denial. True? Absolutely. Much different from these guys. I'm not saying they're the same, but he understood what it was to deny. And how many, pe- how many times did Peter do that? Three times. But you know what's so beautiful about Peter and his life? It's the repentance and the fruits of that as you come to Acts. What's he doing? Man, he is preaching the gospel, right? There is salvation in no other name. So, while there's a difference, I wonder what it would have been like for Peter to have have written that. So, that's the term denying. Now we move on to the master. They were denying the master. We need to understand this word master. The Greek word is despotus which emphasizes one. Now, this is very important in light of what we just said, denying the master. It emphasizes one with absolute authority, an undisputed owner, an absolute sovereign. That's the idea of the word. So when Peter writes they are denying the master, what are they saying? Continually they're saying, we don't have an absolute authority. We don't have an undisputed owner. We don't have an absolute sovereign. That's exactly what what they're saying. And you know, they're not just saying it once, but they're saying it over and over and over and over again. So that's what the term despotus means. It means absolute authority, an undisputed owner, an absolute sovereign. And Peter says these guys were denying the master over and over and over again. And I do think since we are to be salt and light in the world, it's a good question to ask, what are people seeing in our lives? Isn't that a question worthy of consideration? I mean, obviously, we're not false teachers. I don't, you're not wearing a shirt that says you are. I hope you're not. But, but I was reading this and I was thinking, well, I need to be different from the false teacher. And I believe I am. 
But what does my life say? And that's really the focus of, of the chapter. Well, there's a couple things we need to understand about the use of the term despotus. Despotus is used in the New Testament to refer to the master of the house about half the time. There aren't very many occurrences in the New Testament. But about five of those times, it's used in reference to the master of the house, like a slave and master relationship. And you see that two verses, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Look at this. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, the reason this was so important is because there was a huge percentage of what in this time? Slaves, right? You had a lot of owners that were even believers, but you had a lot of slaves in that culture, all right? And so Paul is writing about this, and it's pretty intense when you look at it. He says, let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that, and look at this, look at the weight of this, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. Pretty heavy. And then he says, and let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved teach and preach these principles. Twice he uses the term despotus. And so that's the term there that he uses. All right, so you have here, uh, it's used in terms of a master and a slave relationship. You also have despotus used in the New Testament to refer to the master, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, and it's really split, split about half. There are about five other occurrences where you have a despotist used in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of those times is in Acts chapter 4. I want you to go back there. Acts chapter 4. I want you to see this with me. Acts chapter 4. Um, this is an interesting response, if you will, to the um, scene, what's going on here. All right. You know that Peter and John are arrested and... Um, I want to start in verse 13. I, 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 this really intrigued me as I was reading through this. I don't know that I'd seen it before in terms of paying attention to it but um, as much. But verse 13 of chapter 4. He had just said there's salvation in no other name. It says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. By the way, um, just to pause for a second. The training that every believer needs is in the Word of God. So just because you haven't been to Bible college or seminary doesn't mean that you're not worthy. (laughs) I just wanted to clear that up. They were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. They had ordered him to go out, out uh, to go aside out of the council. They began to confer with one another, saying, "What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot what we can't deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this in this name. When they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach." At all in the name of Jesus. 
But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. I love this. You be the judge. For we cannot stop what? We cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. My friends, listen to me. That's a believer. We can't stop speaking. There may come a day, listen to me, where they close up buildings like this. But you know what? You won't have to stop speaking. Will you? Right? We'd never have to stop speaking about the one who loves us and died for us and rose again and lives victorious over death and is coming back for us. We don't ever have to stop speaking about that. Said verse 21, and when they had threatened them further, they let them go on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And look at this. Look at, I find this interesting where they are. Look, look what they say. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O despotus, sovereign one, the one with absolute authority. (laughs) They just came back from the religious leaders who thought they had what? Absolute authority. (laughs) The one with absolute authority, listen to me, the one with absolute authority is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one. It's not man. I mean, I just, wouldn't you have loved to have been there, man? That must have been quite a celebration. I just, I just really, man, I was just eating that up. I wasn't tearing out the pages, but I was eating it up. Oh, Lord, it is thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Going back to the fact that the despotus is the creator. My friends, listen, he's not only the creator, he's the sustainer. He's the sustainer. Well, there's another verse there where despotus is used. We've referred to that one. It's in Jude, verse 4. So as you, as you look at this phrase, right, in Second Peter, it says they're denying the master who bought them. I had to ask this question. How did they continually deny the master? Right, you can define the terms and you can acknowledge the fact that the phrase is there, but you have to ask the question, how were they denying the master who bought them? So you know what I did? I used the Bible, and I used this chapter, and I began to investigate. And I'm not going to give you everything, because we're going to come to some of these, and I want to talk about them again probably, but you'll forget by then. But I want to go over just a few of those, right, phrases that certainly made these guys guilty of denying the master over and over and over again. First of all, I want you to notice how they're described. They're described as liars. They're liars. Verse 3 says, we, we talked about this, but I wanted to reemphasize that. It says, verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will what? Exploit you. With what words? False words. (sighs) 
Parents, when you send your kids to school, think about just one day. I was thinking about this this week. One, just one day, how many false words your children are hearing. <laughs> right? A bunch. When my kids were in school, I did not expect their teachers to be their Bible teacher. I remember when my oldest son came home and he had a question about evolution. And so we discussed this issue and he said, Dad, if I don't answer the question in this manner, I'm going to get a B on the test. I said, get a B on the test. But tell him the truth. (laughs) And Caleb was a smart, he's a smart kid. He's a smart man. But you know what he did? He got a B on the test. And that's okay. Parents, listen. Be in tune with your kid. Know what they're reading and know what they're studying. And nowadays, my goodness gracious, isn't that a chore? Because by the time they're 12 years old, they have an iPhone. And they're scrolling through and man, everything, they're just gobbling it all up. I'm going to keep coming back to that eat in 1 Peter. Gobbling it all up. And how much of it is truth? So we have to be careful. We have to be on guard. Well, these guys are described as liars. They twist words. Remember, I had that bottle up here that I wasn't willing to twist, right, because it's a master's bottle. But, but it, it's taking that plastic bottle and it's twisting it and they're manipulating words to their own advantage. And that's how these false teachers are described. And we've already talked about it. We don't have to look far into the television world of preachers and teachers to find men and women who are exploiting with false words. By the way, just as a, a side commercial, do you know who they exploit a lot? Older folks. Can I just tell you that? Because it's true. And you know how I know it's true? Because I've sat with some people who've kind of said, hey Thad, this person wants to send me this and that. And I'm like, eh. No. Right? Every one of us, listen, and this is what's so beautiful about it. Every one of us, and that's why Peter's writing to all these guys, all these believers, every one of us has the responsibility to be in tune with what our kids and what our parents, right, if they're older and they need care, we need to know what they're reading. All right. I spent more time on that one than I thought I would. Loose living. This is really troubling so they're denying the master over and over again by their habitual line by their loose living all right verse 14 look what it says verse 14 of second peter chapter 2 having eyes full of adultery (laughs) now do you know what this phrase means this phrase means this It describes men who constantly focus on immoral thoughts when seeing a woman. Let me read that again just in case you didn't get it. Men who constantly focus on immoral thoughts when seeing a woman. Do men do that? Answer? Some women are answering, yes! In case you didn't know it, as a wife, 
Men have a sight problem. Men are very visual creatures. The Lord knew that. I want you to go back with me to Matthew. You know this passage, but I want you to see Matthew chapter 5. I have time. It's only 1129. Of those of you who are visiting, and like it's not going to be noon, but you know. A few more minutes. It's good stuff. It's good reminders. Because we need to be opposite of these guys. Verse 27 of chapter 5. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So what's he saying? Guilty. And then he gives them the solution, which he uses hyperbole to do that. But look at the solution. If you're right, I'm going to give you some examples. If your right makes you stumble, tear it out. That sounds really drastic. I mean, if you took that literally, you'd be like, what? I might say all men would be blind. What's the truth? Right? Maybe you're sitting next to your husband and saying, Honey, you're not like that. Every man is guilty. That's the truth. And it's not a laughing matter. What it is, it's sad. But it just proves we are some wretched people. And I'm at the top of the list. And Paul said, What? Oh, wretched man that what? You are? No, he said, I am. Everyone is guilty. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you, for it is better that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Let me give you a radical example of this radical instruction. If your phone is a problem for you in terms of looking at pornography, throw it away. Ah, That's ridiculous. We live in a world where I can't do without my cell phone. All right, well then go figure out how you can never get to those sites. Don't come to me because I'm not a technology guy. But figure it out. Right? Figure it out. And it looks like that's what Jesus is saying here. Right? Tear it out. Rip it up. Whatever it is. I lived in the day back when I was a teenager. It, It took a lot of effort to get to some pornography. But it doesn't take much at all anymore, does it? Remember, we just talked about guarding. Hey, guys, listen. We just need to be honest, right? This is where we eliminate the churchy face and go, hey, let's just be real. The reality is we live in a sensual culture that provocates immorality all the time. And immorality is sexual sin. And it's all over the place. And I remember when my boys were born thinking, man, I hope I don't have to talk to them about all that stuff until they're teenagers. And my oldest one, it was 10 years old when I had to start talking about that kind of stuff. I can't imagine what it's like now. So Jesus says, right, get rid of it. So whatever it is, guys, I don't know, I'm not in your life. But the way Peter describes these guys... There are men who constantly focus on immoral thoughts. On the other hand, a believer needs to be what? Glad you asked. 
And for that, I have to go back to 1 Peter. That's why I brought this Bible up here. I'm not kidding. <laughs> All right, 1 Peter chapter 1. So the way he describes these guys is they're liars. Instead of liars, we need to be truth-tellers. They're loose in their living, right? We already have seen that in previous weeks. But on the other hand, as believers, we need to be holy in our conduct and behavior according to the Bible. Notice chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. By the way, it's interesting if you study... This is a side note. You go study it this afternoon. It's interesting when, when Peter or Paul talk about the behavior of the believer... Always around that somewhere is the coming of Christ. <laughs> it's really good motivation to stay holy, right? To be separate in our behavior. He says, as obedient children, verse 14, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. So he's acknowledging that they were different, right? Right? before they came to Christ, as obedient children. He's expecting here, he's assuming an obedience, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Don't go there. And as you mature, you know what's really awesome, guys? As you mature in Christ, you know what takes you to those places you don't need to be. You already know. Right? I remember when USA... The television station was risque way back. When I remember when it first came on. Now, man, you just flip a channel. You can't, I mean, you can't find anything, hardly anything good, can you? Except the Razorbacks. That's it. <laughs> the pigs are clean, by the way, Acts chapter 10. <laughs> All right, I had to throw that in somewhere. Look what it says. But like the Holy One, notice that the there, the Holy One. There is one Holy One. In fact, Isaiah describes him as what? Holy, 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 Isaiah 6. Revelation describes him as holy, holy, holy. Why? Because he's holy, holy, holy. He is the Holy One. Notice, I love this. Who called you? Listen to me. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, my friends... You are blessed. <laughs> I know I'm blessed. And the older I get and the more this body breaks down, I'm waking up now, my shoulder hurts. My toes hurt. My feet hurt. I'm like, man, Lord, I am so thankful you've called me out. And I'm so thankful that I'm yours. And I'm so thankful that one day I'm going to be in your presence forever. And I'm so thankful that on top of all that, I'm going to have the blessing of another body. Praise the Lord. See, young people don't know what it's like. They're like, ah, I'm doing good, right? Just wait. But like the Holy One who called you, what does he say? Be holy yourselves also in what? What's that next word? All your behavior. Man, that's tough. 
You know, you take a really hard look in the mirror, that's tough. All your behavior. And when I thought about that phrase, I thought about this. That means every single thing I do as a believer, and I'm talking about myself, every single thing Thad does as a believer needs to be measured. I need to measure the words I say. I need to measure the things I do. And you know why? Because people are watching. Right? Somebody's watching. Somebody's listening. There, answer that phone. And then he says, "Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." Well, so these false, those who are false, are described as those who have loose living. Their eyes are full of adultery. On the other hand, guys, we've been called to be holy in all our behavior. Hey, guys, you know what that means? Listen to me. This is very, very important. That means, because all of us are in the same boat who are believers, that means we need to pray for one another in this area. And I'll say this to the husbands and wives here today. Wives, pray for your husband that he would have eyes for you. Right? It's the best way you can pray for your husband. That he have eyes for you. All right, man, it's 11.38. Third one, greedy. Notice verse 14. Having a heart trained in greed. By the way, this describes a continual state. They're always greedy. It's always, I want more, I want more, I want more, I want more. There's never enough. Greed describes a desire to accumulate material wealth and possessions. And those who have that, by the way, is their, is, is their mantra. They can't get enough. Right? It's never enough. It's the Deion Sanders syndrome that I spoke about. He just couldn't get enough to the point where it wasn't satisfying, to the point where Deion Sanders attempted suicide. On the other hand, believers should be what? You know what the opposite of being greedy is? Hello? Generosity. We're givers. That's right. We're givers. And it reminded me yesterday. I'm sorry, this is a side story. Tom reminded me yesterday we're at a baseball game, and this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But he's like, generosity. And I was thinking, man, yesterday we were at this baseball game, and and the coach for the opposing team is, is yelling signals to his players, zero, one, two. One, three, four. Two, three, seven. So, you know, us on the opposite team, we're like, we should just stand up and say, bingo. <laughs> Boy, I really wanted to do it. You have no idea. And you know who the suggestion came from? Teresa. <laughs> Teresa. Poor Teresa. By the way, if you're visiting, that's my wife. Okay. You know, guys, I just want to share. Can I share two verses with you that will be done? I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 12 because I think there's two aspects of being generous. 
And you know both of these passages, but hey, we can't read them enough. Romans chapter 12. Part of this generosity that the Lord right, demands for us is that, that we give of ourselves. I urge you, verse 1 of chapter 12 in Romans. By the way, just so you'll know, there's a, there's a parenthetical section here. So Romans 9 through 11 really are a section in, in which Paul deals with Israel. And so really you're tracing back to chapter 8. Right, If you go to chapter 8, at the end of the chapter, and you come to chapter 12, verse 1, it makes a whole lot of sense. Because if you think about uh, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, I urge you therefore... All those things that he's listed as benefits in chapter 8, specifically like in 28 through the rest of the chapter. Then you come to chapter 12, verse 1, and he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to do what? To do what? To do what? Present your bodies a dead sacrifice. Now, that's not what it says. A living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of what? Of worship. So listen, we ought to be looking tremendously different from these false teachers. We shouldn't have, be these greedy folks. We should be folks who say, Lord, my life is yours. I'm laying my life on the altar. You do with it what you want. Can I tell you something about that in closing? I'm going to close with this. I'll tell you something about that. That has been a lifelong process for me. Any of you in that same boat? I read a story about a guy that he's a pastor and he's preaching on this whole submission piece. You know, he's talking to believers and he's in this class, in the classroom setting and he's talking about to these, these guys who are going to go out and be on the mission field and guys are going to be pastors. He's like, hey, listen, guys. These are all the things that are in front of you. And he starts listing all these things that are in front of them. And he says, but I want to tell you something. Those are just things. The most important thing you can do as a believer in Jesus Christ is daily surrender to him. Those guys walked out of the class and they're all kind of talking, right, amongst themselves. And, and one of the guys says, hey, uh, did you understand what he was saying? He was telling us that this and this and this and this and this are all going to be a part of our missions life or our pastoral life. And he said, I was focused on this. And then he just kind of abruptly changed and started talking about what? And one of the other guys said he started talking about surrender. Guys, that's what the Lord wants from us. Our lives, what do they say? And that's what we want to end with this question for the day. We'll get to those another time. What does our life say? Does it say we belong to the Master who bought us? Let's pray together. 
Lord, there's so much to consider in terms of the description of these guys and um, that are false. According to your word, they're around us. They may even be among us. That just brings about in our minds the urgency to protect your truth. As I said earlier, I do believe, I personally believe, there's a war on truth today. And that begins and ends with your word. And I pray that we would be believers who are set apart to the truth who are continually eating the pages of Scripture. Because without it, right, that's our nourishment. That's our nourishment. We can't go days or weeks without it. I pray in a, you would help our stomachs to growl for your word, just like they do for food. I pray that our stomachs would growl for your word, that we would just have this passion to dig and dig and dig. Lord, I can't come away with this morning without just thanking you for Peter. I thank you that his denial was momentary. And I'm thankful that we see in his life, Lord, a drastic difference between these guys he's describing. I'm thankful he was committed to the task. And I'm thankful he loved the sheep so much that he was willing to lay his life on the line to make sure they understood the truth and understood the danger that was lurking. Lord, help us to know the danger's lurking. It's out there. Help us to be guards. Help us to guard. It's like Paul told Timothy, guard, guard the truth. Help us to guard the truth that we've been given. And Lord, I just pray that your spirit would help us as we live our lives, that we would be different from all that is false, and that we would stand on your word and live a life, Lord, that is pleasing to you. Because indeed, you are holy, holy, holy. Amen. As we close the service this morning, you may be sitting here today, you may be visiting with us, or you may be here with us the whole time, and, you know, God, something, something that Thad said or something that we've sung or something that's happened might have spoken to you, and and instead of saying, being able to say, oh, amen, you're saying, oh, me. Um, if you're here this morning and you feel that, boy, I'm just not good enough, well, you're right, you're not. But we can pray to God that we can come to him just the way that we are. And, you know, he's going to, he's going to take us and he can change us, every one of us. So I want to ask you to just remain seated as we sing this song. Uh, it's an arrangement of Just As I Am. And um, let's, uh, let's just sing this together. And I want you to stay seated because this is really a prayer, a prayer to the Lord. And so uh, let's just sing this together. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed.
Let's go. 